Hey, before we get started here, I just want to let you know that as a little thanks for listening, my company's offering listeners to this podcast some free software. So if you want to learn more about that, we have some more details at the end after the interview. Alternatively, track me down on LinkedIn and I'll have a pinned post at the top of my profile. Just search for Joe Meadows and we'll take it from there. All right, let's get started. Hi there, this is Joe Meadows and welcome to Safety Leaders Now, the show where we cut through the noise and identify the strategies and tactics that today's top safety leaders use to keep their teams safe. On today's episode, we have Peter Jenkins. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Peter, you know, somebody who's very passionate about kind of a new way of thinking about and and doing safety. You know, somebody who's, I think, definitely a rising star in the industry. So I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation. I won't explain too much more about what we discuss so that you can enjoy it as we get into it. But the one thing I do want to note before we do get started is that Safety Leaders Now is about to start our summer break. So we're going to be taking a little bit of time off and coming back to you at the end of the summer with all new episodes and content. So if you don't see us in your feed, just know that we're enjoying the sunshine and recording some other great episodes for you to enjoy come the fall. So with that, I'll be quiet and we can jump right into this episode with Peter Jenkins. Peter, welcome to Safety Leaders Now. Excited to chat with you today. To get things started, can you explain a little bit about uh, kind of who you are and where you work? And uh, maybe if you could expand a little bit on on what the company does as well uh, in as much detail as uh, you can suffer. Yeah, of course. No problem. Well, thank you very much for having me today, Joe. Very much appreciated. So my name is Peter Jenkins, and I'm currently a group health and safety manager at a company called DL. Now, you won't have heard of us before, I'm sure. We're quite a small outfit in the United Kingdom. We basically supply the meat industry and supply kind of wider food manufacturers and sort of major retailers, minor retailers, with materials to do with butchery and, for example, dry spice blends and spices. So, for example, if you get Cajun spice mix type of stuff, we might have made that. In the United Kingdom, uh, there's a little fast food sort of chain. I say little, but there's one on every corner when you come to the UK called Greg's. They have a product called a vegan sausage roll, and we make the vegan sausage roll mix for that. You may have heard of some of our other companies that we provide to. For example, Huel is one that we provide some of the mixes to as well. So outside of that, we also supply potentially your local corner shop butcher in the United Kingdom, as well as doing a couple of bits internationally. Now, I say we're quite a small business, but technically speaking, we are a large organisation in the United Kingdom. We've got 19 sites from Aberdeen down to Exeter with 15 depots, three food manufacturing sites and one packaging manufacturing site with about roughly 750 staff. Now, this is my first group head of health and safety role. Um, Having previously worked in food manufacturing and fast-moving consumer goods in a larger food manufacturing business called Greencore. And before that, I worked in uh, hospitality in Hilton Worldwide down in London. Before that, I actually worked at Northumbria University, which is where I studied. And I was something called a graduate ambassador. Which sounds really fancy, but basically I went and spoke to 16 to 18 year olds about the joys of higher education and why potentially coming to Northumbria University would be the best university for them. And also why Newcastle was a really good city to party. So really quite a varied background um, in terms of sort of post-university type of life. But my degree itself was in something called environmental health. Now, Joe, have have you ever heard of something called environmental health in the UK before by any chance? 
I have, but why don't you explain to us what uh, what that means? Let's assume I have it. Sure. So, um, prospectively, if, uh, for some of your American audiences as well, this might be considered, for example, the health inspector. The person that goes into restaurants traditionally and is seen as that person will prospectively shut them down if they, for example, have rats in the freezer and rats out in the kitchen type stuff. But in the UK, it's, 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 it's a bit more it's a bit more intense than that. And it's quite a generalist type of profession. It takes into account food safety, health and safety, environmental protection, public health and housing. And I absolutely loved my degree. It was a very public sector forward-facing degree. Unfortunately, after a year spent working in the public sector, I decided that that public sector life wasn't for me. And basically that just kick-started my career out into the private sector for everything I've described so far. Gotcha. Okay. So you you mentioned, um, just to take a step back, I think there's there's a lot to dig into there, but you mentioned, you know, with, with your current organization, you're sort of supplying these well-known brands as well as small butchers. And, and you mentioned some of the products. So are these largely perishable products. Like you're not selling butcher paper, you're more selling uh, vegan sausage roll filling. It's literally everything that you could possibly imagine. If you said to me, you said to me, Peter, tomorrow I want to move to the UK and set up a butchers. We'd be able to give you everything that you'd possibly want from that. So your meats all the way through to your aprons, through to your knives, your chopping boards, your equipment, your, I'm going to call them kind of silver goods. If you imagine like a fridge is a white good, but then you've got kind of like a... Uh, I don't know, like a mandolin type of thing. The silver goods that you potentially put in your building as well. I got it. All that stainless steel equipment behind the counter. Absolutely. Absolutely. And although the business has been around for nearly a century, really over the last seven years, it's gone through quite a significant period of accelerated growth. And with that, they're basically uh, of turnaround said, right, we want to have more specific structured health and safety presence within the business. And thus yours truly has been hired to really help establish, embed and evolve health and safety within this business across the United Kingdom. So lots of really exciting opportunities that come with that. But as you can imagine, lots of challenges as well. Just to clarify, are you the first health and safety sort of group lead at the company or, or was this an established vertical uh, before you came along? So it's the first group role across all three divisions that the company's had before. Previously, it has had health and safety representation across the food sort of manufacturing division of those three food manufacturing sites. But this is the first proper group health and safety role where it's taken the whole of the business into account an interesting role to kind of be jumping into as the first group role, really, in some ways. What I can say is that I actually think our last guest was also the first established um, health and safety leader at the organization they were working at. And to me, that's maybe an interesting anecdotal trend to identify that this is something that all businesses now, even businesses that maybe aren't huge or public or, or anything like that, are starting to invest in safety as a, as a function and starting to recognize the value as this becomes more normalized. Let's dive into the business a little bit more here, just so I can better understand why they would take a, you know, a charming fellow like yourself and pay you a salary to, to manage safety in the business. Can you just help me understand the kind of landscape as far as what is the company expecting you to manage? And the more specific you can be, the better. You know, is this road transport challenges? Is this people, you know, shaving their fingers off in a meat slicer? What are the types of things that, that you're there you know, being expected to manage in this business. And I think that'll help shape maybe some of our later conversation if I better understand that context. Dare I say that my job covers nearly everything within the business, be that uh, vehicle safety, driver safety, load safety, 
standard customer safety, um, sorry, customer safety, uh, staff safety, literally everything that you could possibly imagine to some degree with health and safety, I will end up touching at some point. And given the perhaps the, the generalist background that I've had before and the sort of knowledge that I've come to the business with and the value and the skills that I've brought with me. It's also meant that I have opportunities to engage with slightly different elements in the business as well. So for example, learning and development, uh, sustainability from an ethics point of view. So for example, we cover things like modern slavery, uh, whistleblowing procedures, but then also a lot of the physical environment stuff as well. Although the title is health and safety, much as as often as the case for a lot of health and safety professionals, you will find that you will end up doing a little bit of almost everything in some ways. With the proviso, with the very strict proviso here, that probably one of the best things that I'd ever sort of been told as a bit of advice was to take a perspective check and know where your limits are as part of it. Because when the world is your oyster, suddenly everything can become quite shallow very quickly in what you try and achieve. I think 100%. And I think that's something that is unique, or not completely unique, but I think it's very prevalent within the health and safety space. And I'm sure many of our listeners can relate to this idea of kind of having their, you know, their fingers in a lot of sausage rolls, maybe in this case. I mean, that's something that I, I feel like maybe we should talk about a little bit more because that makes me wonder, do we not have a lot of clarity from the the leaders outside of safety on where are we expected to deliver results? You know, is it this idea that, yeah, you hire a safety professional, you hope, you know, fewer people end up in the hospital and beyond that, you kind of let them do their thing. And I think that leads to a little bit more of this wide ranging impact. So do you have a clear idea of what is your executive team expecting you to deliver as far as results? And I mean, if you don't mind speaking to the specifics, just that might help us understand people relate to to those challenges. Yeah, of, of course. And what I'm about to say now might be ever so slightly a little bit disappointing in some ways, Joe. So I, I, I'm going to men mentally prepare you for a second with that. When I first started in the business, uh, for the first couple of months, my task that I'd really set myself was to just get to know how the business operates so that I could set some very clear expectations with the MD, the chairman and, and the wider executive team. Now, the first proper meeting that I had with the MD and the and the chairman when I sat down and we started to talk about those intense three letters that tend to make up a lot of safety professionals' job, which is KPI, what were we going to look at? And I said, we're not going to be using accident statistics as a KPI, and we won't use them for probably a couple of years as part of it. Actually, what we're going to start to focus on instead is just two things, really simply put, inspiring people to ask good questions and empowering them to make good decisions. That's it. That's what we're going to focus on. And so, for example, one of the early questions that we're going to ask in the business is as a leader or as a person responsible for health and safety within your particular site, what are you aware of? What do you understand? What are you not aware of? And what don't you understand? And that's traditionally that known and unknown matrix, which would give us the critical ability in some ways to target and prioritize what we needed to do quickly, what we needed to do the most. And I said, if we're going to put any performance indicator of any kind on anything, it's going to be, are we doing what we said we're going to do about these things that we're not aware of and we don't understand? So we've got our priorities, we've got our risks, and we've got some form of, of tangible, tasty outcome 
where I can say to you as an MD, as an executive team here, we're doing what we say we're going to do about the things that matter most to us. I think that's a very uh, interesting kind of measurement structure. And I, again, I just want to clarify for everybody, that was not a softball. I did not know how Peter measured his team. So all these following questions are coming from legitimate curiosity. I'm not trying to... Uh, <laughs> not, not, not trying to pander here. I think that's a really interesting idea. And I think it makes a lot of sense, given the fact that you're trying to kind of build this organization from the ground up and build a little bit of you know, trust and, and have, make sure that people are willing to engage with you before you start holding their feet to the fire on those very loaded um, incident statistics. So I'm curious to know, first of all, when you presented this to that management team, how did they respond how did you get them to sign off on it? And I guess secondarily, how do you measure that? How do you, how do you present them on a quarterly basis that more people are asking good questions? I'll break it down in, into two, which is kind of the, the initial response. The initial response at the time was one of curiosity. So it, literally, I'd sat, them, sat both the chairman and the MD down and we'd had this big conversation about it. And they responded with curiosity to know more and said, well, they wanted to know the business context right behind it. So although we were very much talking about what we're going to do in safety, actually, we segued a little bit to actually talk about what's going on in the business and actually what does good business practice look like and effectively shape the conversation and shape the narrative about how actually good safety is an outcome of good business. So realistically, we want to run the business in a way that delivers good safety by virtue of what we do. It's not that safety is a bolt-on. It's not that we kind of think about doing something safely. It's that we are doing something safely by design. It's just it's inherently, it's intrinsically safe because that, that's how we're going to do it. So with that kind of, in some ways, an intangible thought process that the structure of our known and unknown matrix would deliver this kind of outcome of natural safety, they were happy, they were keen, and they were excited by it. It's hard at that particular time, say two months into the business, to have kind of given a full sort of roadmap exactly on what it looked like. But realistically, what I ended up doing was explaining some kind of key priority areas that we wanted to focus on. So, for example, uh, risk assessment and assurance. For example, just jump jump off the off, off the forefront of my mind there. There's two areas that would help us kind of structure the narrative around what people wanted to ask and how we wanted to get them to ask the questions, but then also how we would prove that it would work. So since then, what I ended what I ended up doing was focusing more on governance. So kind of we we got the first two months setting out the broad sort of strategic vision, I guess you could say, for where we wanted to go. But then we really started to help deliver it through a governance structure and regular meetings with the MD, where we talked more, perhaps anecdotally and qualitatively, about what we were doing. Health and safety can it's very easy to get lost in the numbers. Very, very easy to get lost in the numbers with health and safety. It's very easy to fudge the numbers as well. So what I was keen to do was to help VMD understand the benefits of what we were doing by facilitating conversations and facilitating feedback with the people that I was working with, the site leaders, those responsible for health and safety, that at any point the MD could jump into, have a conversation with, and see how they were feeling about it. Now, realistically, although that does sort of provide, I don't know, a little bit of uh, nervousness. So you know, you're literally kind of leaving yourself as an open book at any point to be audited by the MD on an intangible feeling, a feeling of does someone feel like what they're doing is, is safer? Well, actually ha half the time, that's half the battle. If they're feeling safe and they can articulate that they're feeling safe because they're asking more questions and they're seeing things getting done about them, perfect, brilliant, that's what we want. 
And progressively over the last sort of year or so, that's what we've been delivering. And we've been slowly moving that kind of qualitative set of feelings into something a bit more quantitative with things like action trackers that can be, for example, just interrogated a little bit further. Where we can, for example, start, we, we've properly started tracking the inputs and outputs of accidents. So we can start to articulate these on a very simple monthly basis, talking about the type of hazards that we have, the type of uh, root causes, intermediate causes that have, that have resulted in accidents. But at the same time, being able to talk about the learnings from those accidents and then actually putting into context how many of the sites are prospectively at risk if those same learnings aren't adopted by them already. And that helps really just establish what level of risk we have as a residual risk, but also the priority and the residual risk that we have as a business as well. So it's a little complex. There's no kind of NEBOSH, IOSH, CSP course type of stuff that really kind of takes us through, but it's, it is very much around what the business feels is right and helping them articulate that in a, in a very proactive and positive way. I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think that this is emblematic of one of the conversations I find myself trying to push, which is that I think there is a absolutely warranted concern or pushback in the safety community about, as you said, getting lost in the numbers that people get so obsessed with these surface level metrics and they focus on those and, and those can distract us from, you know, delivering. We focus a lot on efficiently driving those metrics rather than effectively delivering safety. And I think that that's an absolutely warranted criticism. But the thing that I'm constantly astonished by, and it's it's true just by the way that you've, you've explained this, or I, I think that you feel the same way, is that the way to move things forward is not by a, abandoning numbers. It's choosing different numbers to track. It's finding if these metrics we're choosing to chase are not driving us in the right direction. The answer is not to abandon measurement, but it, instead to move towards something that better measures the things that we're actually trying to influence. So to circle back to your point here, would you say that you're kind of at a stage right now where, where things are a little bit more qualitative and you're trying to establish a bit more of a baseline before you put those quantitative metrics in place, that things are, you need the clay to be a little bit wet right now, because if you lock too much in, it's going to, you know, it might give you target fixation in a way that won't be helpful. Absolutely. It's quite easy in some ways in health and safety to say, oh, well, we, we've had a significant improvement in accidents because we've had, I don't know, 10% less accidents this year than we have had last year. But actually, have we validated the fact that there is actually fewer accidents by checking the first aid cabinet to see how many plasters have been missing? And actually, the reason that accidents are down is because people just haven't been bothered to report them. But that doesn't really look good in the statistics. We can't really put that in the director's report. So ugh. really, the way that I see things, especially in any business that has a, they're at an early stage of their maturity journey, focusing on quantitative metrics too soon and too quickly will drive worse sustainable results, right? You will just be chasing numbers rather than actually establishing and embedding proper cultural practices within the business that will ultimately lead to longer term positive gains. The only downside with that, Joe, is that it does mean that there is prospectively a slightly higher amount of risk that a business will have to shoulder until it gets to that level. I don't even think it's additional risk. I think it's 
it's an accepting of uncertainty. I think if the measurement doesn't affect the risk ever, I think it's the idea of saying, hey, we're, we're not going to be able to do everything. You know, let's do less better. I know that was a theme on a previous episode that we did. And I think that that's... Uh, it's a lot of merit too. You know, do, do you want to do health and safety with an extremely sort of wide lake that's an inch deep? Or do you actually want to do something where you've got yourself a small pond, but it's like, I don't know, the the depth of the, I was going to say the Maranara Trench, but that's not quite right there. It's the the, the deep bit of the sea, right? In, in comparison. And, and actually, I'd, I'd say that with the approach that I've taken, there has to be almost a, a bit of flexibility around it. There's some points where I first came in and I, I decided to cast the net wide to establish just a baseline and just to establish really kind of the, the fundamental foundations of what we were going to do. But actually, once you've done that, it's quite easy to just draw that water back in to really kind of create the depth with something that now has context applied to it. So it's not just trying to throw people in quite literally at the deep end when they've never swam before. And again, that it takes time. It takes a little bit of... Uh, just not really kind of getting into the quantitative numbers and managing expectations prospectively a little differently than what traditional safety might prospectively tell you to do. It takes some patience and things like that, but I think it also takes some courage and perhaps a little bit of masochism on your part because it would be very easy for you to just pop in and say, here's the metrics that all of our competitors track. I'm going to come in, I'm going to start tracking all these and I'm going to move out. But I do think that you know, I, again, I commend you for coming in here and saying there's a consensus in the safety community that this is all a bit of a waste of time and you're going to go in there and do the work to to get it right. I, I think that that's not as easy as it sounds when you talk about it uh, on a, in a conversation like this. I'm sure I'm certainly following the way that you've laid this out and I'm sure our listeners are as well. I guess I have two questions and you can answer them in whichever order makes sense for you. If you're going through this analytical stage. You're trying to not move too quickly so that you, you don't get stuck chasing numbers that don't make sense. How do you put guardrails on that so that it's not analysis paralysis? Because it's never, you're never going to understand everything perfectly. So how are you judging that transition from wrapping your head around things and, and developing some psychological safety, which is a popular term, to getting to a place where you are going to start enforcing you know, metrics or targets or just finding a way to measure that success in a more quantitative way. So that's my first question. How do you measure that transition? And I guess secondarily, and this is a huge question, so maybe I could nudge it later, but do you have an idea in a perfect world? And obviously not all of this is going to be possible, but what do you wish you were measuring yourself? You know, I think we talk a lot about what are you reporting up the ladder, but I think that there's not enough discussion about how are you know how are safety leaders keeping their own house in order what are what are the what's all that minutia that the you know managing director doesn't care about but that you need to use to keep a good sort of pulse on your area of the business and i think as somebody who's clearly thinking very deeply about these topics and has some some support from your management group to do things in a different way do you have any sort of idea on the the metrics that you want to be measuring when you get to a place where that can be a bigger focus for you? Yeah, of course. So I'll, I'll try and answer them sequentially right, as, as we kind of go through it. So thinking about the, the first one, which is really about the analysis paralysis and the, the kind of psychological safety element to it. So 
with the maturity of the function, right, it was still kind of being in one where we're really kind of, it's going through a significant period of startup at a group level. Now, this gives us some particular opportunities that otherwise wouldn't be afforded. You know, that there is no preconceptions that exist on what safety can look like in some ways. It's because it's totally new in some respects to a lot of people at a group structured, a centralized structured way. So one of the earliest things that I did in the business was try and remove myself as an individual from the function. And what I mean by that is that I didn't want the business looking explicitly to say, right, well, this this is, it's Peter doing this. No, it's, it's just, it's Peter doing this. That, that's it. This is Peter. No, this is the function. This is something that I called the, the shoe function. Instead, the safety, health, environment, and well-being function. And to kind of bolster this idea, I created a bit of a brand behind it. So we've got our own logo. We've got our own color scheme. We have our own font structure that we use. We have our own PowerPoint template, for example, that uses if we send out a little bit of a, a poster, for example, it's done in a very particular color coded kind of way because it, we want to have a visual association with a function rather than with an individual. Now, that's not to say that we want to depersonalize what we do with health and safety, but we want to create it bigger than an individual, right? It has to be more than someone just coming to me as a person to speak about health and safety. So that was one of the first things that we did. The second thing that I did was focus on how the governance structure of the business allows people to talk freely and confidently and psychologically safely about health and safety. The easiest way that I did that I say it was an easy way, but I completely restructured how the business talks about health and safety in meetings. So to do this, rather than splitting the business into its core three divisions of packaging, food manufacturing, and logistics and storage and distribution, I said, no, sorry, it. we're in the United Kingdom here. We've got five sites in the north, four sites in the east, five sites in the west, five sites in the, in the south. And we're going to talk together as regions everyone's going to be facing the same hazards. I've implemented an, what's called an A to Z folder structure. So if you want to talk about fire, you go into a folder called fire. And in that folder, there are all of the same subfolders in every single site's fire folder. Everything from composite panel safety, fire safety, fire alarm checks, fire extinguisher checks, you name it. They've got all the, the same things, right? So literally everyone is now talking using the same language. They're talking under the same brand and they're talking about the same things or they at least have the capacity to. The next thing was to then take that structure and apply it on a quarterly meeting basis so that we could come together as a region and talk about things like, what well, well, traditionally the lagging indicators, so the accidents, what's happened, but what are the learnings from them? What leading indicators have we had? Health and safety reports, hazard reports, near misses, incidents that have come up, but really what are the key hazards that people have been talking about. Why have they been talking about them? What does that mean to you as a leader? What does this hazard mean to you? Now, what does pure mean to you? What does Legionella mean to you? Actually, have you even heard of these things before? In what capacity, do you know, what, what does it mean? And then trying to explore that side of the rationale when, when we're discussing it. And by having these kind of smaller groups where it is multidisciplinary in some respects, you know, you've got different divisions that are going to it, Actually, it very quickly and easily broke down barriers. And we found that there were people talking to each other about health and safety that had never talked about this before. And that actually emboldened them to ask more questions because they felt safer to do it. They felt more comfortable in doing that. And by taking the kind of conversations about, again, what do we know? What are we aware of? What don't we know? What aren't we aware of? And applying it at a localized regional level, 
we actually found quite quickly that we were able to make some key significant changes and plug some, some gaps that were identified through conversations. And relative to our perhaps um, non-quantitative performance indicator or key performance indicator outcomes, this actually made a lot more sense because we were finding that some of the critical things, some of the critical topic areas were getting covered a lot quicker through this kind of devolved approach to communication that was facilitated by myself rather than having something that was was directly structured. I want to dig a little deeper here because I think this whole idea of, hey, let's get a diverse group of stakeholders to have a conversation and probably creates a little bit of novelty and makes people want to open up a little bit more. You know, this sounds like a fairly rare opportunity to connect with maybe people in other parts of the business. I, I think that that makes a lot of sense on a high level. And I think that's something that, you know, a lot of people could tactically take away as a way to just encourage better conversations. But I want to circle back on a point that you mentioned earlier, which was this idea of, you know, you talked about your folder structure and the the normalizing of certain language around these topics. And that made me, it brought me back to this idea of, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book, uh, The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. It talks about, he, he was a surgeon at Johns Hopkins uh, who was kind of tasked by, I think the WHO to create a, a checklist for safe surgery. And as a, you know, a writer and a highfalutin surgeon, uh, he did a bunch of research on what makes a good checklist, which I think is actually something that a lot of safety professionals could spend more time on. Anyway, what he found in the context of surgery, where you have some nurses and some doctors and things like that, all getting together to perform something that's quite high risk, they did some math on the difference it made when everybody introduced each other. And it reduced complications in surgery by something like 40%. And it all came to this idea that when people didn't have shared context, when you have a you know a team that's changing all the time, we might be working together. And if I don't know your name, I'm much less likely to, to reach out and say, oh, can you pass me that? Or is this okay? Because I, I just don't know how to address you. That that actually reduced a lot of this very practical risk in a surgical environment. So to go back to your case, I think it's so interesting that you took this approach of normalizing language because I think in the same way, if you've got a group that's very focused on the risk of contamination in a food product and uses a certain language that somebody who works in a shipping and logistics facility would have no exposure to, there's probably going to be a little bit of apprehension and, and oh, I don't want to look dumb here. I don't know. I, I don't want to speak up in this piece of the conversation. So I'm curious to know what inspired you to do that? Where, where did you get this idea to, to put this kind of vocabulary out there? Being perfectly honest with you, I don't know. And I think in some ways, I don't know is probably the answer as to why we ended up doing this. Because I, God, I've yet to meet a health and safety professional that is a walking encyclopedia right, of, of knowledge around everything to do with health and safety. I know that there are some people that can articulate some very specific elements of the legislation and the compliance side of things very, very well. But honestly, Joe, it kind of scares me a bit, to be honest with you, when I try and think about, can I regurgitate everything in the Health and Safety at Work Act? No. Can I signpost people to the right points of it? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. But I'm not going to repeat the subsection and section, chapter and verse with it. And actually having the humility to admit in quite a public sort of place in some ways to say that hands up as a generalist here within health and safety, I am 
broadly aware about the requirements that we need to do, but the exact specifics we're going to go through together and we're going to talk through it together and we're going to find out actually what this means to us in a pragmatic way. And pragmatism is a bit of a buzzword within health and safety. I get that, but to maybe cut through the crap a little bit more, it's just saying, how are we going to do it so that no one goes to jail and that people are still safe? That's what we're going to do. And, and speaking in these very perhaps um, open, transparent, and to a degree, uh, humble terms where you can't know everything, but you're going to find out together. It really resonates, really does. And it allows people and it affords people the opportunity to say, well, actually, I've, I've really not that confident in this myself. Can we talk through it a little bit more? Or does someone in this little group here know a little bit more about it or can provide maybe a different example or something like that? And again, having those smaller structured, governed groups on a quarterly basis gives, at least within my business at the moment, gives me and affords me that opportunity to have that conversation. I'll be honest with you, Joe, sometimes it works a little too well and we end up going over meetings quite a little bit in terms of the times that we've got. So to avoid maybe getting too much into the meat of the matter, whilst uh, also allowing people the opportunity to express themselves, but what I've ended up doing now is providing drop-in sessions for topical areas after the events have been run that gives everyone from all of the regions an opportunity to come in over the course of maybe an hour and a half or so and ask any questions. Literally, just let's have a conversation about it. I did one the other day for composite panel safety, and it was great. It was really good. Literally, I had uh, about, I'd say we've not got a huge amount of people in the business, but I had a good amount of people join at the start. Half of them left after they'd asked the questions that they want, and the other half stuck around because they wanted to hear what the people wanted to say. And that, for me, was a real win. It was a huge win to hear just literally people just wanting to come in and talk about it a little more, find out some more information, and have a conversation so they could help their own knowledge and help their own growth. Perfect. It was, it was an hour and a half of my time, but I honestly think it saved me about maybe seven hours worth of individual site engagement because of this one kind of collaborative approach to communication instead. Well, that's awesome. And I think there are so many safety professionals who would, are probably thinking voluntary engagement with, with any safety initiative is exciting for a lot of people. And, and I think hard to imagine probably for some, but it's amazing. I think that's so emblematic of the fact that, you know, people will sometimes be, um, get frustrated by the fact that maybe the, the people on their team or in the broader organization aren't engaging as much as they'd like with various programs, but maybe maybe they could take away from this. They don't want to engage with whatever program you've made. They just want to come and have a conversation about something that's concerning them or something they want to know a little bit more about. And it's less about, you know, attending the voluntary safety committee meeting, which, you know, sounds like washing paint dry. There's absolutely a place for health and safety committees, 100%. I absolutely think that there is. Where they can prospectively fall down is when people get voluntold that they need to come and do it. So again, from the opportunities that I've had so far with the, the way that we've structured the governance of these kind of regional meetings and the regional approach to engagements, there isn't so much of that committee as much as the fact that there is just by standard definition, just a, a group of people from a, a specific number of sites that will come together every quarter to talk about health and safety and to specifically go through what their concerns are, what the challenges are, but what the opportunities are to succeed. I'll be honest with you, Joe, not, none, of, none of the stuff that I feel like I'm doing at the moment, I feel is, is particularly revolutionary. But in some ways, I actually think that a lot more of it is about the, the execution at this stage of the maturity of the business to make sure that actually over the next 
90 years of the business progressively each year each month there's just that step 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 improvement and even if it's one percent two percent every month it's adding up every single part of the year to a point where actually to answer the second question around in a perfect world what would i measure i'll be honest with you the only thing that i would actually measure would be actions but in the sense that the actions that we're measuring are the ones that are organically owned by the site where they come to me and say, hey, Pete, we've had a great idea for how to improve uh, fire safety. You know, we're, we're not going to focus on manual doors. We're going to all focus on automated doors instead. And all the doors are going to open automatically when the fire alarm goes off, rather than it just being these standard like arcade push bar type of doors instead. That quality of that self-driven ownership of a, a site improvement plan is exactly where I feel health and safety needs to be. Unfortunately, accidents are going to happen in a business no matter what happens. I think it was Crystal that had said something about being unable to stop the rain. There's always going to be the prospective chance of an accident. And it's not to say that measuring them doesn't have a place, but actually how many of those businesses that truly measure accidents measure and report on the actions and the learnings that have come from those accidents that have then been completed across all of the sites so it doesn't happen again. I feel like why why focus on the accidents in the first place is your key primary point. Why not just focus on the actions first? You can still track and you can still record those accidents, but people doing the actions related to them is always going to be more important to me. Based on personal experience and some of the research that we've done in my day job, that I think that you're absolutely on the right track here. Take this, you know, you can take or leave what I'm about to say, but I think you need to measure, or I was going to ask, you know, are you measuring the frequency of these meetings? And that, because I do think that that can create like a false sense of security when I mean, you're just measuring meetings, whether or not the meetings are good or not, doesn't matter. And then you have those meetings that people just show up for and sign the attendance sheet, and, you know, leave. And I, so I think measuring actions is, is the direction we need to go in. But I do find that in our experience, there needs to be additional qualifiers. If you just measure actions, you get a lot of pick up the garbage okay, I picked up, like people start to assign actions that are very easy to complete. So it's a matter of, you know, you need to measure quantity of the thing that matters. And I think actions and change and making sure that you're, you're measuring continuous improvement, right? But it's a matter of impact. How are you measuring the, the kind of quality of the action being performed and how much it's going to impact the business is a very important modifier. Completely agree, Joe. And I, I do want to clarify the point as well to say that measuring only actions isn't kind of uh, the the be all evangelical approach to health and safety that I want to try and try and push in that respect. I do honestly think there's there has to be more of a holistic approach to it. I mean, for example, in previous businesses, we focused on things like, for example, the amount of accidents from a lagging indicator point of view, but then also, for example, how much training have people done over the course of a month? How many behavioral safety conversations? have we had? How many senior leadership team tours have been done? How many actions have been measured and how many actions have been completed as part of it? But then how many reactive actions have happened and how many proactive actions have happened? And I do think that to get to the perfect world of health and safety, where we're looking at a real value adding suite of metrics, it won't always just be accidents. It will be so much more to it. But I still believe that actions have a key part into it. It's ultimately our responsibility as health and safety professionals, though, to make sure that those actions aren't people dropping a pallet and then putting it away. No, that, that it, ha it has to be, has to be a bit more, more than that.
I can speak from personal experience working and having, you know, safety responsibilities, although that wasn't my primary uh, role in, in an offshore oil and gas environment. And we had a, an action quota where we had to have three health and safety actions per week. And at a certain point, I couldn't come up with anything else. And the standard maneuver was find an edge and paint some tiger stripes and put some non-skid on it. You could get a lot of good actions out of that. And I think it just became a bit of an existential thing for me around saying, I don't think we're being incentivized to actually have an impact. We're just being incentivized for for showing evidence. And not to say that adding non-skid and highlighting uh, steps is a bad thing, but it felt very mechanical. And I think that, do you have any thoughts on, in some theoretical world that none of us live in, how things you'd like to know that might give you an insight into whether or not those actions are are worth doing? Like, how do you measure impact? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's a good question. And again, it depends in some degree on the maturity of the business that you're working in. If you've got a business where there is a lot to achieve as part of it, then actually you can quite easily see impact based on residual risk or associated risk with that particular issue, not necessarily action, but the issue that the action's related to and the priority that that action is related to as well. If you've got people that are consistently knocking out critical priority, unacceptable risk actions, then actually that's probably going to tell you that you've got something a little bit more complex sort of source really in some respects that's resulting in all of these actions being picked up at critical priority and unacceptable risk level all the time. If you've got people that are completing just acceptable risk actions that are low priority and that's been their focus areas, well, in, in a similar way to what you were talking about in the oil and gas sort of position that, that you had there, my question in some respects is saying, are those staff empowered enough to really think about the issues that might be affecting them or prospectively thinking about the enhancements that could exist for their health and safety that could have an action associated to them? So rather than, for example, finding a sharp edge and trying to deburr it attached to it, actually does that team or does that area, would they prospectively benefit from focusing on maybe something around mental health or prospectively focusing on something more around their physical health or potentially their financial well-being instead where actually an action could be that you've taken everyone through a financial well-being course over that particular month instead to help them understand how to prospectively save before Christmas to ultimately reduce stress before the holidays. Again, I appreciate that is maybe a little bit of a stretch in some ways, but I think that the only limitations that we find in very mature, highly successful, highly uh, structured businesses is to actually think a little bit more creatively and think a little bit more tangibly about those kind of wider interconnected factors that can help health and safety that we might not focus on because actually the sharp edge is the obvious one that we can easily solve. That's a loaded topic. I think if you were, if you were let's say, taking an efficacy-focused approach to reducing risk in an offshore oil and gas environment, I think that the many of the things you mentioned probably were would have been a good idea. I think in many ways, I worked in an environment not, I wasn't on rigs, we were doing uh, offshore construction projects, which were often kind of infrequent, but high intensity and quite lasted for several months. And I think in an environment where you have people working 12 hour days, sometimes for a hundred days in a row without a break, you can imagine that a certain degree of apathy around the fact that the company's particularly concerned with their well-being uh, sets in. Um, but financial stress was resolved. I think that that was the one thing they had going for them. Again, in some ways, Joe, it kind of, I say this and I, I appreciate, I don't want to come across as being 
completely oblivious to all of the very explicit and intense high risks that exist, for example, on, for example, in oil and gas type stuff. But, but what I'm curious to know in some ways is, again, whether or not those interconnected factors are always truly considered by health and safety professionals, or if it's always seen maybe as just an add-on attached to it. And actually, you know, wh whether or not that would provide different avenues for progressive health and safety improvements with the enhancement of health and not just the avoidance of injury or ill health in comparison. I think that that's a conversation that needs to happen. And I think that this is a great tangible example of kind of what I was referring to around. It's not that we shouldn't be measuring things that we it's we should be measuring different things. I think the, the example that I just gave is, yeah, I think if the company was able to understand in a tangible way that went beyond, you know, some great white paper we showed them, but that these specific employees, that investments in, let's say, their mental health or their fatigue or what have you, there is immeasurably increased risk level and there are investments we can make to reduce that risk. I have no doubt in my mind that those companies would do that. I think this is the, the low-hanging fruit of the safety business, in my opinion, is the measurement of context because risk is dynamic and we focus on the icing, but it's, you know, we, we don't kind of get into the details of what are all the factors obvious and kind of more hidden that we're not measuring that might not mean anything in an isolated case, but if we can measure them on a, in a more holistic way and better understand what's the environment where a severely in fatigued employee is able to perform their job safely because frankly, we we've all seen that happen so many times. So I think that's why many times businesses will balk at the idea of we've had people working 12 hour days for a hundred years. Why should we change that now? And instead to say, well, the situations where this leads to negative outcomes are, for example, when fatigue is coupled with uh, emotional distress, what's that additional context that, that we could be pushing towards, and I understand that much of what I'm talking about here is very detached from the realities of what many safety professionals are dealing with, but that's the stuff maybe on, on just on a personal level where I think there's, there's a lot of uh, value to be mined. I think you're right, but I don't necessarily think it's too detached actually from what, what we tend to do as safety professionals. I think that there's an element of survivorship bias that's very easy to be blinded by in health and safety. And what I mean by this is there's um, there's an image. If you kind of Google survivorship bias, uh, a World War II plane, right? And it'll basically come up with a picture of a plane with a whole bunch of red dots on it. And these are the planes that have come back and uh, effectively have survived the fight, right? And the question goes saying, oh, well, where should we put the armor when we send out the upgraded planes? And people usually say, well, hey, you know, we want to put it where all of these red dots are. And actually, no, you don't want to put it there. You want to put it where the red dots aren't because where the red dots aren't are where the sh those planes have been shot and they've now crashed. They've crashed and burned as part of it. So in, in some ways, maybe focusing on the bits that aren't as obvious is probably going to be the bit where we can add some real key value. Well, a thousand percent. And I think the, it, it, but obviously there's many things that aren't obvious that are irrelevant. And I think that just goes back to, you know, in my opinion, there's this transition that is inevitable and I hope happens soon where we start to kind of take the, I, I was talking to Todd Conklin about this actually last week. I, I used Facebook as an example. Todd and I were um, 
enthusiastically discussing some of these topics. And I talked about this idea of saying, you know, when you have, I think the the data is that if you like seven things on Facebook, they are one of the most accurate predictors of your voting behavior. That just with that somewhat detached piece of information, they have a pretty good insight on who you are as a person and, and what you're going to do. And that has to do with the fact that they have so much contextual data that tells them, you know, that is a small signal can actually tell them a lot. And my feeling, and again, I'm, you know, this is just my, I feel like every episode I have like a soapbox moment. Uh, my feeling is that it's someone is eventually going to identify that if we can find a way in a worker centric, you know, no, not a, a punitive way, but to just to know more and measure we did a pilot project with a company that could measure emotional distress based on retinal eye muscle contractions. And we, I was very curious on how much does that tell you about the prevalence of incidents? Well, you can't know that in the abstract. You need to deploy that at scale and measure that against so many other factors. But to me, that's what, that's the promised land. It's making me question or whether or not in health and safety, we're asking the right ancillary questions around associated topics with health and safety, i.e., do we ask enough psychologists about the way that people think? Do we ask enough sociologists about how society brings together groupthink that will prospectively change how they engage with the health and safety instruction? For example, COVID was a great example of psychology and sociology at play with how, I, I don't know if you know, Joe, I actually have three microchips in my arm at the moment from all the different jabs that I've had. I can't wait for my fourth, honestly. going to just forget the fact that I've got a phone with GPS and a microphone and a camera that I look into for six hours a day. But realistically, you know, if we, we want to be kind of thinking, actually, how does the psychology and sociology, the way that people think around that type of stuff, actually affect the way that we deliver health and safety? Can we do more with these type of things? Do we want to engage with marketers about how to sell health and safety messages? If people are willing to buy shorts off a Facebook ad. For example, speaking from personal experience here, I saw some cycling shorts. So, hey, they look really cheap. I've never bought anything off Facebook before. I'll go for it. 12 weeks later, my shorts hadn't arrived. I felt a little duped. I felt a little daft. But fundamentally, the tactics that that one advert on Facebook used for those cycling shorts, I just kept thinking, wow, if that had convinced me, a lifelong cynic of buying stuff off the internet, to buy something off a Facebook ad, Wow, How, what what can I use from those skills to maybe sell health and safety messages in the future? I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, to me, this is my personal belief is that I think, you know, we need to be having those conversations with the psychologists and, and with all these people to, to better understand behavior. But I think, again, this is my personal belief. Uh, I hold no one else accountable for what I believe. And I'm sure it'll ruffle some feathers, but I think that it's not about I think the role of a health and safety professional, in, in my opinion, if you if you accept this thesis, that if we had more data points around what was going on, I often just talk about this idea that we focus a lot when we assess risk in a commercial environment. We focus on what's happening and we say, what's the risk of what you're doing and how do we manage that risk? Well, that's a great start. But if you go back to sort of one of the tropes of... Uh, communication is kind of the who, what, why, where, when, and how all impact risk. And it's all dynamic where 
if you change the who, if I'm doing a job versus you're doing a job, risk is going to change. Well, JHA doesn't capture any of that. Are you doing it at midnight? Are you doing it at noon? That's going to affect it. Is there a rainstorm, as Crystal said? That's also going to affect things. And I, I think that in a, many of the conversations that I have, there's almost a surrendering to that complexity. It's kind of saying, like, there's so much to know, we can never understand it. And I think it's a compute issue. It's saying, if we only formulate this problem as saying, we as individuals need to be able to synthesize all of these details and read all the white papers of what we should be assessing and that we are somehow going to come up with this. There is a degree of hubris there, in my opinion, that's probably not super effective. And I think there's going to be an evolution of saying, personally, I think that there's going to be compute models that that can really clearly identify you know, the probability in real time based on you know, having a model that's going to say what's happening, but it's also connected to a weather API. So it knows if it's going to rain and it's going to update the information it's provided to an employee dynamically, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right there with the way that especially kind of quantum computing and high risk safety is going. I definitely think that we're going to see that type of stuff. Do you mind if I hit you with a couple of things that I've found have been really helpful for me at perhaps a smaller level to maybe think about in the, in the same kind of way as I've been going through my career today? Absolutely. There's a couple of different things that I've picked up over the years that I found really useful to consider. To your point about the way that people think, right? There's a really good book called Aaron Meyer's The Culture Map. Now, this is a book, for example, that Netflix use very significantly and very, very uh, proactively when it comes down to helping define their culture. But in Erin Meyer's The Culture Map, she talks about perceptions, cognitions, and actions. What do people feel? What do people think? And how do people act based on them? Taking these three into account has always been a really good key factor when it's come around to planning any initiative that I've thought of to try and maybe pick out some of the what if scenarios or prospectively try and engage with stakeholders around those three different areas to help drive a very value adding outcome. The other type of approach, and it's similar to what you've said about the who, the what, the why, the how type of thing, there's basically six factors that I keep in mind. And it's time, quantity, quality, cost, capacity, culture. And those six things together, actually thinking, for example, well, what's the time frame that I've got to deliver this initiative? Does it need to be delivered at pace? What are the time frame outcomes attached to it? From a quantity point of view, what is the minimum viable quantity that needs to be delivered from this initiative as part of an outcome or an output that will prospectively deem it successful? And similarly, what level of quality is attached to that to make that minimum viable product or minimum viable solution? actually appropriate, actually successful by the nef definition of the parameters that have been set. Now, when it comes down to the Cs, for example, cost is an easy one. What's the budget? Most safety professionals don't have a budget. So in theory, do you need yeah, to- Probably zero. Exactly. Exactly. How can you start with zero? Well, actually, in some ways, it depends on the mindset that you set around cost. Is it a cost or is it an investment instead? And actually articulating it in the context of cost versus investment might actually mitigate some of that zero budget issue. In terms of the perhaps the capacity side of thing, now capacity is a really big one for me in my businesses, and it will be for those people in a position of startup or maybe in a time of turnaround as well, where they have kind of limited capacity in their teams. So actually, capacity is more associated for me with the doers. It's one thing to generate the idea, you know, people come up with great ideas every single day, but actually capacity is the fundamental factor that will affect the execution of it. What is the capacity of the people doing the task? Is Does their cup overfloweth already? 
Does it actually need to be that capacity dictates that your initiative can't be something new, but actually needs to be an adaptation of something that already has existed before? And finally, from that cultural piece, actually with the culture, are you trying to push something that is a, in a safety culture, except that that's maybe different to your business culture or separate or segmented from your business culture? Is it the other way around? Or ultimately, are you trying to deliver an initiative that will join both the business culture and safety culture together within what you're trying to achieve? So perceptions, cognitions, and actions, three things to consider as part of it. But fundamentally, time, quantity, quality, cost, capacity, culture will very much help you define the initiative parameters and success metrics attached to it. I think it makes a ton of sense. Okay, so I want to let's you know we we've covered a lot of ground here. We've talked about your business. We've talked about your kind of career. Uh, we've we've talked about the future of health and safety and and measurement here. But I want to make maybe make a bit of a left turn here and talk a little bit about leadership. Obviously, something that we're passionate about on the show and we want to dig into here. I think it's you know it's not safety specific, but it's something that our listeners in general are trying to work on. And I know it's something that I'm you know, always uh, trying to improve on. So you're here, you're in an environment where you're starting up a team. You know, you've talked about how you're measuring and the, and the kind of goals you're setting. That's obviously part of leadership. But I also want to understand, we didn't get into your team and you can, you can expand on that if you like, kind of how big is it and, and things like that. But what I think is fundamental to leadership is, or what I see is the responsibility of somebody in a leadership role, whether it be on a team or of a business, is to make sure that those people that they work with are clear on what's expected of them, that they have the resources to do it, and that you know they have the skill sets to be successful in that role. I'm personally super lucky to have folks like Val, you know, who is has incredible capacity and amazes me all the time with the great work she does producing this show and with everything else she does. But I'm curious. For you, as you think about those problems and creating that kind of creating some clarity for your team, how do you think about that? How do you structure that to try and keep yourself accountable as you move things forward? Like many safety professionals, prospectively listening to this show, I've been previously in a position of being a team of one, but a team of hundreds at the same time. You know, there is in, in some ways almost an ingrained style of leadership that favors egalitarian principles, flat hierarchies in some respects, when you end up having a team of everyone rather than necessarily a team of direct few as, as actual direct reports. And it's only been very recently that I've been able to establish an actual formal team um, that's currently comprised of two people at the moment that are, are relatively new starters within the business. But fundamentally, I think that a lot of it comes down to setting clear objectives clear expectations attached to them, but fundamentally empowering those within the teams to deliver on the strategies and tactics that you establish. So there's something that I've, there's a very good link attached to this that we might be able to put in as well, but there's a really good episode of the High Performance Podcast that I listen to, not, not to try and plug a load of other different podcasts. They definitely haven't got me on as a guest before now, Joe, but there's a really good episode there with a gentleman called Alistair Campbell, who used to be involved with British politics. And he established something in his work patterns called objective strategy tactics, which is something that I've very much followed throughout uh, the last few years of my career as well. 
And what it basically is, is where you will set a clear objective to start with that might be something that you've just established yourself as the kind of functional lead or something that you've prospectively uh, gone out for consultation with and established together as a group or prospectively as a team. Then you move on to your strategies, which is more of kind of the broad top level type of stuff. So I'll give you an example. One of my recent objectives was that sites always use a digital accident management system when an employer liability accident occurs on their site. Right, that's the objective. The strategy attached to this was simplification, make life easier, make life better, and standardization, make it the same. Now, from my point of view, those objectives and strategy, that objective and those two strategic points there, was something that I had defined myself. But what I ended up doing next was going out to the wider team to help establish the tactics and to consult and decide around the tactics together. And what we came up with is that actually we want to split these into four areas. So our simplification strategy is underpinned by two tactics, extrapolate an indirect process and apply the learnings from that to accident management. And the second one being to de-skill the task and upskill the staff. From the standardization piece, it was simply to introduce something called organizational architecture which is a, a broad concept that can be found in the book, The First 90 Days, that I highly recommend any safety professional or any professional going into any new role will read it. It's a phenomenal book, a phenomenal book in implementing governance attached to the standardization piece. And the final tactic being to digitize the process of accident management and upskill digital literacy across the business. Now, by effectively providing a consult and decide approach to the tactics that would be underpinning these strategies and the objective, it means that I could actually push the ownership of the associated tasks from those tactics to the actual people at the front line and to the leaders and those responsible for health and safety within the business. So effectively, as you go down this kind of hierarchical framework of objective, strategy, tactics, task, you end up being able to empower people to lead the activities and the associated tasks and tactics themselves, whilst also making sure that you as a collective figurehead are leading the overall objective achievement. So it's almost like, oh God, I'm hesitant to say like a, a pyramid scheme, but ultimately everyone at each level of the hierarchy contributes to the level above them from that point of view. And perhaps in that respect, maybe leadership as, as a sole world word, in my opinion, isn't enough. I, I think that every safety professional ends up being kind of a, a chimera hybrid of a leader and a facilitator to some degree, lest we come across safety professionals that are practically dictators, but it doesn't necessarily seem like it would gel well, maybe with the ethics of what health and safety tries to accomplish these days. So Accountability-wise, you setting the objective really establishes that level of accountability. You are, you, you've set the objective, you own that objective within your functional scope as, as a leader. But fundamentally, delegating the responsibility in an empowered and structured way through objective strategy tactics task, I think will provide one of the, the greatest approaches to scalable leadership within health and safety that elevates those around you at the same time as achieving what you need to. Makes sense to me. I think that's um, Alistair Campbell, probably. I, I feel like that's the the wording used by uh, many military groups. I know we have a lot of uh, uh, vets uh, who listen to the show, and I know that that's very similar language that, they, that they're uh, using. And I think, yeah, yeah, it's just, in a way, it's almost um, too simple, but I think it's elegantly simple. It just gives, you know, that's all we're here to do. What do we, what do we need to do? How do we want to do it? And then the details.
Absolutely. There is a very good uh, military term that I came across before called UDA, which is quite a nice acronym, but it is to observe, orient, decide and act. And I think it's something, I think it comes from uh, the Navy, I think, and sort of the, the submarine side of things. But the idea basically being is that you see what's around you, you orient yourself toward the objective that you want to achieve from that point of view, you decide on a course of action, but you take the feedback in a dynamic and adaptable way to ultimately act upon it to achieve your goals. So that's a very, very perhaps simplified version of UDA as I understand it. But again, that's something that I found to be exceptionally useful to just help structure some of the adaptations and some of the uh, unexpected type of things that you'll come across in health and safety when trying to deliver an initiative. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a good, very tactical, practical note uh, where we can leave things off. I'm just looking at our uh, the clock here and I realize we're uh, we're... We've chatted longer than it certainly felt like. So with that, I'm curious, is there anything else you want to get out there? Kind of any closing thoughts or any, I don't know, feelings on the state of health and safety or or anything else that, that you want to share uh, before we wrap things up? I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm outside of kind of my day-to-day type of job. I'm in something called the IOSH Future Leaders Community Steering Group. It rolls off the tongue, I know, but it's very much about how we can inspire future professionals and those involved in health and safety and prospectively an early part of their career to just get more involved with health and safety and to continue uh, pushing their development and continuing to grow within the capacity that they are. And I'd Highly recommend no matter where anyone is in the world, reach out to your local communities within health and safety. So be that, for example, uh, IRSM, IOSH, NEBOSH, CSP, whatever it's going to be, the time of potentially health and safety professionals coming together has never been greater as we come out of COVID. And I honestly think that the earlier someone gets involved with the type of health and safety communities that exist on LinkedIn and kind of in digital spheres, the earlier, the better. So please do feel free to reach out if there's anything that I could prospectively help signpost you to with communities around health and safety. And certainly do keep an eye out just for the Irish Future Leaders piece. But attached to that and just to the point that you'd made on leadership as well, if anyone listening to this is at an early stage of their career and they're thinking that they want to move into a position of leadership, I'd say that you already are leading health and safety in one way or another even just by taking ownership of the activities that you have responsibility for, you are taking the lead on it in some ways. If you've identified that there's a prospective improvement in health and safety that you're passionate about and you want to go above and beyond compliance, you know, you, you're not breaking even at this point, you're finding the profit in health and safety beyond compliance and going above and beyond it, you are leading prospective change. Take it, brag about it, shout about it, be the absolute best version of yourself that you can be when you're describing your achievements because you're already doing a fantastic job. And I genuinely, I love hearing about everything to do with people's achievements in health and safety. So I hope you don't mind, Joe, if I say that if anyone would like to reach out to just have a conversation about health and safety, please do feel free. It would be my absolute pleasure and privilege to hear what you've achieved in health and safety and what you plan to do as well uh, through your careers and through health and safety as well. No, I I love it. What's the best way for people to do that? LinkedIn? Yeah, LinkedIn. Um, you can find me just by searching the name Peter Jenkins, or I think my last, like, you know, you can create custom URLs at the end. Uh, mine is PTM Jenkins. So that's Papa. Oh, God, my phonetic alphabet's just disappeared out of my head. Papa Tango Mike. Mike, that's it. Jenkins. Just search me on there, PTM Jenkins, and that'll be the best way of getting through to me. 
Awesome. Well, I uh, I really enjoyed the conversation, Peter. I thought I think it was great. It flew by, and uh, I think people are going to be able to get a lot from this. So thank you again for joining us, and uh, hope to have you on again soon. And thank you very much, Joe. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a chat with you. Um, thank you. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Take care. All right. Well, thank you for making it all the way through the episode. I just wanted to mention again, this podcast is brought to you by OpsLock. OpsLock is the new way to keep your team safe at work. We're basically the most modern and advanced health and safety tool out there. If that sounds interesting to you, one of the things that we're offering to listeners of this podcast is free access to our workplace observations tool, meaning that you can roll out a digital workplace observations tool in your company, no matter what the size is, for free. If that sounds interesting or you just want to learn a little bit more, go to our website, opslock.com, fill out the Get a Demo form, let us know that you heard about us on the podcast, and someone, probably me, will set up a call with you. So, Anyway, that's it. Thanks a lot for listening through the episode and I hope you have a great day.